Luke chapter 9. Let's begin reading at verse 18. Brethren, let us hear the Word of God. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They, answering, said, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. Now notice that he says, He must. He must. And then he says in verse 23, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? May the Lord bless the reading of His wonderful Word to our hearts tonight. Daily in the newspapers, on the radio and television, across the Internet, and in uh, other forms of media, we're told about dozens of polls. One poll tells us that the American people think this way. Another poll tells us they think that way. Another poll tells us they think something else. Major decisions in every level of government and business administration are formed on the basis of polls. Polls have almost become the voice of God in our culture. And they're the perfect example of the religion of democracy. The voice of the people is the voice of God. What do the people say? Then that's what we ought to do. So we're familiar with polls. But now if I were to take a poll here tonight among those of us that uh, have gathered to hear the Word of God, what would be your nomination for the most hated doctrine in the Bible? The most hated doctrine in the Bible. Think about that for a minute. In our day, it would seem that any of the doctrines of grace would qualify. Many people, including many professing Christians, utterly detest and hate any or all of those precious doctrines. But of these, which would qualify uh, as the most hated? It would be election. Men hate that. They hate the idea that God chooses men unto eternal life and that it's not in our democratic wills to cast our vote for God. They hate that doctrine because 
it means God is God and we're not. What about total depravity? We live in a day where uh, everywhere you go, we're being taught how wonderful we are. And that the solution to everything is if we just learned how to love ourselves, and then we could love everybody else. <laughs> the lie to that is that we come into this world knowing how to love ourselves better than anybody else on the planet. And we do, and that's why we do most of the things that we do. And that's one of the reasons that when you tell men, no, you don't hate yourself, you love yourself, and it is because you were born with a wicked heart. And men hate that. They really do. They hate that doctrine. They want to believe that they were born good and the only problem they have is that somehow or another they just fell into a bad crowd. Or they just weren't taught the right things. And education will save us. But the Word of God utterly crushes that wrong thinking. So men hate total depravity. Particular redemption. Boy, men hate that one. That Christ died for the elect. That Christ died for the elect only. I've seen people get mighty red in the face when you try to talk to them about that doctrine. Now, we could go on through all the doctrines of grace, couldn't we? Those of you that know and love them and have tried to uh, inform others regarding what the Scriptures teach on these things uh, know good and well that there are times when you meet incredible opposition and resistance to these truths. But are they the most hated doctrine? I mean, we could move on and look at a multitude of biblical doctrines that men hate. The absolute sovereignty of God. That God virtually, no, not virtually, absolutely rules all things. I mean, I've had people look at me with absolute fury when I've told them that even the trials and tragedies that come into their lives come from the hand of the God of love. Well, they hate that. No, anything good, that, that comes from God, and anything bad, that comes from the devil. They hate it when you tell them, have you read Job lately? Have you seen that it was God who permitted Satan to wreak all that havoc in Job's life? I've had people say, I would never worship your God. My sad response is, you don't. But my God is the God of the Scriptures. You must worship a God of your own fabrication. They hate that doctrine. Oh, the doctrine of the Lordship of Christ. That when one believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not letting Him save us. He saves. He saves His people from their sins. There is that crowd out there today that says, oh yes, we can take Jesus as our Savior, then later down the line, when we get good and ready, we can let Him be the Lord of our lives. And when you tell them, no, that's false doctrine, they get uh, upset, don't they? They hate that doctrine. Men, men, even professing Christians, don't like anybody telling them what to do. And they're foolish enough in their darkness to think that they can let God do things. The Lordship of Christ utterly takes that away from them. How about the doctrine of eternal hell? 
Have you ever seen people grow livid when you tell them that God will put sinners in hell for all eternity? It is tragic that among many that profess to be Bible believers today, there is a movement of those who are rejecting the doctrine of eternal hell. You know why? It's not because they found anything new in the Bible. It's not because uh, the church through the ages just came in and read this horrific doctrine into it. It's because they refuse to believe the Word of God. And they want God in their own image. They wouldn't do that to people. Certainly God wouldn't do that. Not a God of love. Eternal doctrine is it, or the doctrine of eternal hell is a hated doctrine. How about the doctrine of reprobation? Not only do men hate the doctrine of election, oh, but they utterly, utterly detest that God would pass over and leave some men in their sins. That's not democratic. Men hate that. They fiercely hate it. And of course, how about Paul's doctrine concerning women? Well, there's a, a good one. Toss that into your next uh, conversation with someone that you haven't seen in a while. How about that, Paul? <laughs> said that women aren't to usurp authority over men. <clears throat> Sparks. Feminist movement utterly detests the patriarchy of the Scriptures. They hate it with an unquenched passion. They'll do everything they can to tear it down. And the feminized, weakling cowards that call themselves men today very often bow right down to their hatred and, and anger with this doctrine. Now, surely I've left some doctrines out that may have come to your mind. You might say, oh, well, I, I think this is the most hated doctrine in the Bible, or another one. But I'm going to suggest what I think, at least what I believe, is the most likely candidate for the most hated doctrine in the Bible. And I find it in verse 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, God willing, I would like to open this particular message under these heads. First of all, the meaning of Christ's speech here, the meaning of the doctrine. Then number two, the application of this doctrine. And uh, I just want us to consider those this evening. Well, let's begin with the meaning of this particular doctrine. Let's consider first the setting. The parallel accounts of this, of this particular passage, you can find them in Matthew 16 and in Mark chapter 8, reveal that Christ spoke these things in an area called Caesarea Philippi. Now, this place had been renovated by Philip 
the Tetrarch, and it was named in the honor of Caesar Augustus. It's really quite a picturesque place, according to the things that I've read. A very lovely background. There's a, a majestic snow-covered Mount Hermon, which rose 9,232 feet. Now picture the Lord in this beautiful setting, glorious mountain rising up behind him, speaking to his disciples and saying these things. He had come here for private prayer. Apparently there was something about the beauty of it that drew him. He loved it. He loved this place. And he came to commune with his father. And while he was there, he took up this discourse with these that were surrounding him. He drew away from the multitudes and was now alone with his disciples. Now he raises two questions. Uh, again, here are those that he loves deeply surrounding him. Beautiful setting. And he raises two questions. Number one, who do the people say that I am? Whom say the people that I am? Well, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the old prophets. The Lord Jesus Christ knew that there was great error regarding who he was. He knew that Israel, his own, he came into his own and his own received him not. He knew that Israel did not recognize him, did not know who he was and did not believe that he was Messiah, not as a whole. And then he says to these, but who do you say that I am? All right, now we've heard what they think. Whom do you say that I am? Peter says, the Christ of God. Amen. But Peter didn't figure that out. The Lord Jesus told him in Matthew 16, that didn't come to you by flesh and blood. My Father revealed it to you. You, those around me in this place, understand that I am Messiah. I am the Christ of God. And then he gives them a prediction. In verse 22, it says, The Son of Man must, the Son of Man must, if you want to do a good study sometime, study the word must in the New Testament, and you will find some amazing riches. But the Lord Jesus Christ is saying must. It's a word that means there aren't any other options. There was one thing for Christ to do. He must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and raised the third day. Now, again, now that we're trying to paint the picture here with the Scripture pencil, let's, uh, let's, let's get a hold of what's happening here. The Lord Jesus Christ is head to head with, with those blessed disciples here in this beautiful place where He's come to pray. He says, Who am I? You're the Christ. You're Christ. The Christ of God. Right. And now I'm going to tell you something. Now, they would have expected, I think, when you read the testimony of the, the Gospels, they would have expected Him to say, and I will rule and, rule and reign in all of my splendor and glory. I will establish the kingdom. And what does He tell them? 
I'm going to die. I wonder what those words sounded like in that beautiful place. I must. There is no other option. The path for me is that I must be rejected. Now that's something that all of us in general hate. We don't want to be rejected. We want people to love us. And here's Messiah. God's Messiah. He says, I've got to be rejected. Now, this would have to be breeding confusion in their thinking. What? Why do you have to be rejected? If you're the Messiah, you're, going to, you're the son of David. You're going to rule forever. They were right. They just didn't understand God's program. But he said, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be slain and raised the third day. And if you read through the Gospels carefully, you'll realize none of the disciples ever understood that until after the resurrection when the Lord opened their minds and hearts to receive it. Christ plainly tells them in this glorious little circle, I'm going to die. Mark chapter 8 says it this way, And He began to teach them. I mean, He instructed them in this that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes and killed and after three days rise again. And He spake that saying openly. This goes hand in hand with Luke's. And He said to them all, we don't know exactly how many disciples were there, but He said it to them all. Now what's the point? What's the point? Well, first, Christ calls those that are His to join Him and His disciples. In other words, He doesn't say, I'm going to die, and that's it. He's going to take this doctrine further and make an application that's very sobering. He calls them, and then he declares the cost of discipleship. Verse 24, For whosoever, he said to them all, whosoever, and that can be said to each of us this evening, beginning with me, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. You want to live for comfort? You want to live for you? That's all you're going to have for a few moments. And then you will lose all of it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Again, this had to be very strange language. Yeah, we live in a pretty religious culture, so we read some of these things and we go, oh yeah. But, but this was new language. I'm going to die. And if you want to follow me, you need to be ready to die too. But not just dying physically. That would be one thing. We have lots of people, zealous disciples, that would jump up and say, I'll die for this cause. I'll die for that cause. When I was a child, I will never get over the fact that there were some uh, Buddhist priests that in protest of what was happening in their country poured gasoline upon themselves, 
as they sat in the street, lit themselves on fire, lifted their hands in protest, and died burning alive. You can find, you can find people that will die for their cause. You can find people that will die horrible deaths if they think the cause is worth it. But the call of Christ goes beyond simply dying physically. And this is where the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, puts His finger on what we hate the most. The call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is the call to come and die. It is a call to continuous self-denial. Now, there have been people throughout the ages that have abused that doctrine. They figure that all they need to do in order to be holy is to go out and uh, get into the wilderness and starve themselves and uh, beat themselves. And, and this is what they think self-denial is. This is not what the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about. Christ is saying in this context, as the living God come in the flesh, the Christ of God, my life, my doctrine, is to do my Father's will. It is to go to the cross out of love for my Father and His eternal purpose and out of eternal love for my people. My life is a life of giving myself a life of self-denial. In other words, the Christian life is simply to be patterned upon the life of the Lord Jesus. And He shows us very plainly that love is not a mushy feeling. It is a selfless giving of ourselves for the well-being and benefit of others who in the main are utterly undeserving of it. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. He says, I'm heavy. My soul sorrows unto death. But what shall I say? Help, get me out of this. He said, no, this is what I came for. This is the declaration of God's Son. Yes, he sweat in the garden. Father, if it would please you to take this cup from me, do it. But this was not sinful. This was the flesh crying out, understanding that he was about to be judged as a sinful thing. This was not selfish flesh crying out. This was his humanity withering at the thought of being cut off from his father. Romans chapter 15, verse 2 and 3 says, Let every one of us, let's look at that, let every one of us 
please his neighbor for his good to edification. Brethren, this is not a suggestion. This is not something that the Lord is saying, well, you want a nice, victorious Christian life. We have ten secrets here. Uh, here's one of them to try when other things aren't working so well. I used to work in a Christian bookstore. I, every now and then I say things like that. Yeah, I used to see all these ten keys to, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, God doesn't have a formula book. There aren't. Uh, he, he didn't hide everything in here and say, "Okay, uh, the, the key to happiness is is like hide and seek. If you can find it in here somewhere, it's there." No, it's just plain on every page. Christ. It's all in Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Christ. But if you're following Him, there are clear commands. And Paul is simply taking up here in Romans 15. The, the, the very practical application of what Christ said to those disciples. The same thing said to us here this evening. Friend, there is no Christianity that does not know this verse. If you do not know this verse and walk in it, something's very desperately wrong. At the very least, you're out of kilter with the pattern that the Master's called us to. Let every one of us. Remember? He said to them all. He said to them all, and Paul's saying the same thing. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good. When you come to church, do you come looking for how to encourage the brethren? Are you looking for the opportunities to lay yourself out for those that are there. Day by day, husbands, do you look for ways to edify your wife, your children? Wives, you, your husbands, your children. Children, if you profess to be Christians, are you attempting to please your neighbors, your mom and dad? For their good. Brethren, that is biblical love. And the price tag is taking up the cross and following after the Master. Amen. And you're not going to find it any other place. It's not hidden. It's out in the open. It's under the cross. We're to do this for their edification. Why? Paul says, for even Christ pleased not himself. That's the pattern. Brethren, that's not legalism. That's love. That is biblical love. When you are able to look at yourself and deny yourself, put away your desires, not so that somehow or another you get closer to God, that's legalism. You put yourself aside so that you can show true love. And that honors Christ. Because that's what He did. The Christ of God said, I must die. And that's on behalf of my dear children. Brethren, that isn't something peripheral to Christianity. That's lying at the very heart of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at the application then of this for the rest of our time this evening. 
I'm going to tell you why, first, that I think this is the most hated doctrine. And then, secondly, God willing, I hope to tell you why I think it ought to be the one we love the most. Instead of being the one we're most tempted to hate, I trust it will be the one that we will love fervently. So why do I think this is the most hated doctrine? Well, first of all, it's hated because of its requirement. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ began teaching them. And He said, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to experience this. I'm going to... He began to show them that this is what was lying ahead of Him. He taught them this. It was a requirement. It was a requirement for Him. And then He said, now, if you want to follow Me, if you want to be My disciple... It's in taking up the cross. You see, these requirements begin with discipleship. Now, what is discipleship? We hear that word a lot. But, but what do we mean by it? How, how do we live this thing called discipleship? Well, it's not just, quote, having 15 minutes of quiet time, you know, uh, reading 10 minutes in, in, a, in a devotional booklet, uh, you know, and then going to church fairly regularly. It's far more than that. The word denotes those who direct their minds toward something. A disciple is someone who directs his mind toward something. Therefore, a disciple is a pupil. He's an apprentice of a teacher. In other words, uh, I can say it this way. A disciple is a learner. That's what he is. He is a learner. In the Old and New Testament times, teachers, philosophers, rabbis were often surrounded by their pupils. Remember our scene? The Lord Jesus there in that majestic, lovely scene. Come and die. He said to each of His disciples, His learners. Since these, uh, these pupils often adopted the distinctive teachings of their particular teacher, the word began to signify a devotee or a follower of a particular philosophy. So if you were to... Uh, today we have... People that say, oh, he's a disciple of Marx. Uh, he's a disciple of uh, Carl Sagan. Uh, what are we saying? There are people who are following in the steps of that teaching and that leader. Brethren, what I want to press on your heart and mind is that if the character of our lives is not taking up the cross and denying ourselves... We're not following the teaching of our teacher. <laughs> We're not disciples. We may be people that want to escape hell. We may be people that would just, oh, you know, Christianity, yeah, I like all that. You know, you nod your head, you go to heaven, everything's great. But that glorious free grace of God calls us to something. It calls us to walk in the grace of our Master. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com We can also be reached by email 
at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.